you got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 once again tonight. We're going to begin reading the first three verses to remind us of what we began last time and to get us started uh, for tonight's message. We'll be focusing on verse number nine, though, um, uh, in just a little bit. Um, and then uh, we'll be turning over to 1 Corinthians 9 in a little while. Uh, and you'll, I think, catch up to why we'll be looking at that scripture uh, as we progress through our message. But let's first read Acts 13, 1 through three. Now in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manane, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. You know, something that's pretty remarkable, um, everybody has heard of Barnabas, everyone has heard of Saul. These other guys that are mentioned, we hear of only here and we never hear of again. Um, and it, I think it's pretty unique that Saul is the last on the list, yet he becomes the most important of the group. Uh, you never know um, who God might be working through and, and just because someone isn't remembered fondly or remarkably through history doesn't mean that God did not work through them. Um, some of these men maybe just mentioned once, but you don't remember, we don't remember, we don't even have a full picture of just what they contributed to the kingdom of God. So I felt like it was important that we give some attention to uh, Simeon and Lucius and Manane. These men, clearly pillars of the early church, clearly had a, ha had a part in this mission. They were some of them that laid their hands on, of course, the one who would become the most famous of them all. Yet we don't hear anything else about them. But just because uh, of that, it doesn't mean that they didn't contribute something incredible to the kingdom. So I hope that encourages you tonight. Uh, we may be um, just a little church and a little part of the world compared to how big our world is, compared to how big the universe is. Um, our names may not be recorded in scripture. Our names may not be recorded in history, but our names are on uh, the in the Lamb's book of life. Our names are part of the kingdom of God. And that means we make an impact and have an incredible role to play, um, not just here on earth, but also in heaven. We're jumping back into this text, and I got to tell y'all, Acts 13, it, it should be up there on your list of, you know, top 20, top 30. Uh, it's hard to narrow it down more thin than that, but it should be up there in one of the most important chapters of the Bible, also one of the most important uh, stories in history. Um, we began last week talking about uh, the church at Antioch, specifically their mission to the ends of the earth. This group uh, took literal the command by Jesus back in Acts 1, take my gospel to the ends of the earth. And here the church of Antioch seems to have their sight set on actually doing that. Um, whether, they, whether people understood Jesus to be literal or not, Antioch took him to be literal because of course they would not be a part of the church had the church uh, there in Jerusalem not taking that literal. Um, Antioch is already um, way beyond the boundaries of where the disciples ever imagined the gospel reaching. And now under Barnabas's leadership, uh, the church at Antioch set its sights on reaching new heights, uh, reaching the untapped, unreached territory of Greece, Greece and of course beyond that Rome. Uh, the church at Antioch is an amazing case. Uh, it's, a plant, it's a church plant that was succeeding against all odds. 
And a few weeks ago, uh, we mentioned the mantra that the church of Antioch lived by, not stated in scripture, but we can imply this from their behavior. The church of Antioch lived by a mantra. They were always launching. They were never landing. As in, they were never done. They were never complete. They were never, well, we've done enough. They were always launching to something new, something beyond where they had perceived their limits to be. They were always stepping out to something greater, something beyond, something that was next to do for the kingdom of God. And, And the reason why we know this and the reason why we believe this to be true about Antioch, um, of course, history would suggest that, they, that this was true. Uh, but remember when Barnabas first arrived at Antioch, when he was sent by Jerusalem to check on this church plant that nobody thought would ever get off the ground, let alone reach the world. Uh, remember, Barnabas gave them some advice based on what he saw in them. Back in Acts 11, remember this. When Barnabas came, he saw the grace of God. So it was so present in their lives. They had so received it and so embodied it, internalized it, and were living by it that he could see it. And that's pretty incredible, isn't it? He could see the grace of God as in he saw it working in them and through them and, and, and upon them. He was glad, of course, he would have been glad, and he exhorted them. He encouraged them to cling to that, to remain faithful to that place of trusting in God's grace, being faithful to God. And he said, I want you to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purposes. And this grace that you are leaning on and trusting in, stay with it, stay there, because there is your purpose, there is your lifeblood. So they took this literally. Uh, they were all about grace. They remained always about grace in the way they treated others, the way that they responded to God's gift to them. Uh, for this reason, they never put limits on God. They never put limits on God nor themselves because they knew that grace was always about overcoming those limits set by the sin, set by the enemy, set by this world. Of course, they were an example of God's grace, breaking barriers. Remember back to Peter in Acts 10 and 11. They didn't think they would ever get beyond Jerusalem and here Antioch is up off the ground and reaching Gentiles and changing the world. So Antioch remained in the grace of God and was gonna always be focused on the grace of God. I think something that we can kind of extract from their story, what we've learned so far and what we'll continue to see, Antioch continually trusted that God would never withhold grace from them. So, this is so important, they committed to never withhold trust from him. So God had set the table for them. This is my amazing, abundant grace for you. So their response was, This is our unwavering trust in you. If we would just respond to God's grace like that, we wouldn't see a difference made just like it was at Antioch. They continually brought everything they had to the Lord. Because remember, trace the story of Antioch back even farther. Barnabas was the leader of Antioch. What was Barnabas's backstory? He gave up everything to the local church because he saw in it the value, he saw in it the treasure, and that spirit of generosity, that spirit of of trust went with him and of course was embedded already at Antioch. They never held back on God. They brought everything to him, their pros, their cons, their whole lives, and they laid him at their feet. What does Acts 13, three tell us? They fasted and they prayed. They were emptying themselves out to God. I think that's pretty important. They were fasting before they were praying, as in they were giving God everything before he ever gave them anything. 
Do you see that? They weren't waiting on God to respond to, what, to fast or to give him something. They were pouring themselves out first because they knew that that was in and of itself a greater cause and bringing about a greater reward. So we talked last week about worship, how they adopted this lifestyle of worship and service. They did not just commit an hour a day or an hour a week to God. They gave everything to God. They didn't just give 10% to God. They gave 100% to God. They live with open hands. I think that's something we can, grab, we, can, we can pull from this. Here they are worshiping with open hands. And here's something I think we can learn about open-handedness when it comes to our posture before God. The more open-handed we are, the more open our hearts will be to receive more of him. Because what's the exchange from Acts 13, 1 and 3 to the next part? As they're open-handed to God, God pours out to their hearts. And of course, God's going to say, hey, separate me, Saul and Barnabas. I'm going to send them. And of course, in the next verse, they are sent. So their open-handedness, there's a correlation. Open-handedness and open hearts or ability to receive from God. That if we have our hands clenched, if we have our hands full and our hands held back, we can't imagine or expect that their hearts will be filled. But of course, our hearts probably aren't even open to God to be filled, if that's the case. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. We hold our treasures in our hands, but those treasures reflect the status and the contents of our heart. So we saw, we see that in how quick they were to support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem a few chapters ago. They sent Barnabas and Saul to bring relief to those at Jerusalem. Uh, how they would serve God in any way they could, especially through serving others. Another thing we know about the church at Antioch is they were open-minded. Open-minded before God. is, And they did not come to God with their minds made up. They did not come to God with their plans. They came to God and sought his plans. We don't know what they were expecting God to say on this, any, on this worship service. We don't know if this was a special worship service where they were really seeking God's vision for their church. We don't know. This could have been an ordinary Sunday. I don't know and we'll never know until we get to heaven. But the point of it is they were in front of God, not with their plans, but looking for God's plans. And that's what ignited this entire mission endeavor. It doesn't tell us that Acts 13 was some, uh, they, they didn't expect this to happen, yet this is what happened. They were seeking God's plans, and of course, they received them, and they obeyed them. So what, what do we learn from that? And what coming off of our conversation last week, if we don't enter worship with an open mind, doors to serve the Lord will never be open for us. Now, there's a lot of Christians who aren't looking to serve God. They aren't looking for doors to open. They're just looking for windows to open from heaven so they can get something from him. That's an even bigger problem, right? But, but we see here, if we're Christians wanting to serve God, like the people in Antioch were, we've got to have an open mind as in God, what is your plan? Not here are my plans. Because God responds to open-mindedness when we say, God, I'm open to whatever you want, then the doors to serve the Lord will open. But if not, they never will. You know, it's easy to be closed-minded when serving the Lord. It's easy to assume that our way is better than God's way and even blur the lines. And, and sometimes we do our way so long in the name of God, our way becomes God's way to us. Walk in any given church and ask them, hey, why do you do that? They, don't, they might not have a verse for it. They just have a, a belief for it. And, and usually it isn't rooted in Scripture. It's just rooted in tradition. Not to say that traditions are bad, but I'm saying that it's easy and it's so quickly, it's quick that our ideas become assumed to be God's ideas. 
That's what I think is most on display here in the definition of true worship and the true response to God is how the Antioch church said, God, we're open to you and we want to hear what you have to say to us. We're not bringing ours to you. We're, bringing, we're hoping to bring yours to us. Um, Barnabas and Saul are summoned immediately after they are sent by the Holy Spirit to the island of Cyprus, which they sail off the coast of modern-day Turkey, and they go to an island that we'll look at a picture of in a few minutes. Uh, they go to Cyprus, and immediately after going to, to Cyprus and preaching the gospel in the synagogues, uh, we're told that a certain leader there, down in verse 7, we're told that a proconsul or a Roman senator uh, that was ruling over that province um, this guy named Sergius Paulus, um, he summoned or he called for Barnabas and Saul to come to him. So they're in Cyprus, they're preaching the gospel to the Jewish community there, and that word gets out, and this Roman leader named uh, Sergius says, hey, I want to hear more about this Jesus that you've been talking about so much. Now, the proconsul we're told, had previously relied on a hired magician named Elymas. Um, and the most, this was normal in, in ancient Rome or in the ancient world. If you were a political figure, you had, a, 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 you had someone who was talking to the gods for you, a magician or sorcerer or some sort of prophet, uh, whether you, whichever religion you were a part of, you had somebody that was always there to communicate to beyond uh, what you could see. This proconsul was no different. He had this sorcerer named Elymas who must have uh, you know, touted himself as having the ability to talk to the gods or talk to um, whomever was behind the scenes uh, in their Roman religion. So Elymas, um, this sorcerer, uh, tradition would suggest that he was hired to predict the future. Um, whether he could or not, and most likely he couldn't, he just put on a good front that he could. Uh, he was hired to predict the future, to communicate to the gods and maybe, more importantly, help him manipulate the gods, which is why a politician would really want a magician on their hands or at their hands, is that he might manipulate the gods for him and on behalf of his will. So you can imagine that this magician felt threatened when he heard that his, his uh, client, his, this politician, was hearing uh, the gospel from Barnabas and Saul, um, especially in this line that we've been talking about, um, how the God of Barnabas and Saul was not one that could be manipulated or controlled or bought, but one that we needed to surrender to. You can imagine this was threatening to Elymas' bottom line, which is why he gets so combative in the story. Uh, the simple gospel would have torn down the magician's message, this idea of bring something to the gods. Maybe you'll please them uh, because the gospel says, bring yourself to God. Jesus has pleased him for you. Just trust him, turn your life over to him and be saved and all will be well. So you can imagine, and this is something that we see consistently throughout Acts, these magicians get especially threatened by the gospel because the gospel would cut ties uh, with their clients and would bring people into the uh, true understanding of God's will and God's plan. There would have been a ton of pagan religious figures like this uh, that were merely tools of the devil to enslave people and deceive people. Barnabas and Saul will encounter more and more people like Sergius who are hungry for truth, hungry for real, uh, a real connection with God. And they will go and preach the very gospel that we've seen them live by, this open-mindedness, this open-handedness. Um, Barnabas and Saul were driven by and they sought to spread uh, Antioch's brand of Christianity. 
which again is all about being open-handed, being open-minded, that we might have full hearts. This is going to change everything in the Roman world. This is going to change the world, the way it operated. And within 300 years, the very government would be toppled from the inside. I want to talk about tonight, though, just how open-handed and just how open-minded Saul was. Because I think his example takes the cake. Uh, I want to talk about how full his heart truly was, which drove this brand of Christianity, which should be the only brand, the only version, the only standard of Christianity. Sadly, it's left in the Bible, but it should be present in our own world, in our own churches. Um, Of course, up until this point, um, we've known the Apostle Paul as simply Saul, but Verse number nine tells us that from this point forward, as they enter this new frontier, something changes. Specifically, his name changes. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this man. And of course, he says, why are you trying to just pervert the straight rights of the Lord? But the point of it is, from this point forward, beginning down in verse 13, we don't hear the narrator refer to him as Saul anymore we hear him referred to as Paul from this point forward, unless Paul is telling his own conversion story, which he says, Saul. But I want to talk about this for just a minute because I think this continues to kind of amplify this open-handedness, open-mindedness, full heart brand of Christianity that Paul embodied. Um, First although we know him as the Apostle Paul. Acts never refers to him as an apostle. That was a title that he referred to himself as. Um, And uh, I want to talk about that for just a minute because I think that's important. And a lot of people ask questions about this. So I feel like it's worth addressing for just a few minutes. Apostle means messenger. It's just a Greek word that it's one of the examples of a Greek word that was transliterated, which means a Greek word. It looks fancy and it was, it kind of became a a word used by the early church. It it just means messenger. You could replace apostle with messenger and that's the idea. There's nothing sacred about the word apostle. Uh, Apostle just means a messenger of, from anybody, but specifically we know that Paul was an apostle of the Lord or a messenger from the Lord. You, You see people use this title in today's world, they, 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 they use it because they think it might give them some clout, um, but uh, that, that's really nothing more than a fancy way of saying that they're a messenger. Same way prophet. Prophet means a representative of, of someone, God in the scriptures, of course. Um, but in the Bible, we see this word apostle in the New Testament. These are just referencing these messengers called by God to do a sacred task. The sacred part isn't the name, it's the task that they were given. Um, so what matters is that Paul was the last commissioned apostle by God to lay the foundation for the church, uh, to contribute to the scriptures. Um, Ephesians 2 says that the, God used the prophets of old and the apostles of new to lay the foundation for the church, lay the foundation for the scriptures. Um, and Paul was the last one of those. And here's why we know that. 1 Corinthians 15 says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Uh, the idea there is that, you know, the apostles were people that Jesus, you know, ministered to in his earthly life, his disciples, his brothers. Um, yet uh, Paul, of course, didn't encounter Jesus until after Jesus had already died and rose again. And then he visited Paul on that Damascus road. Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, yet he was nonetheless an apostle. He's being humble here because, of course, he was worthy uh, based on his accomplishments. But 
based on what he had did previously, he felt that shame. Of course, God took that away and made him um, the greatest messenger um, ever to live and ever to serve the kingdom. Uh, but back to our text. Here in Acts 13.9, we see that Luke is signaling to us that a change is going to take place. Um, now, Luke does not explain himself because I think Luke assumes that this is obvious. Now, I don't think it's obvious because a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about this, and I think we need to talk about this. But Luke does not say, from now on, I'm going to refer, him, refer to him as Paul for this reason. Luke just says, hey, Saul has another name, Paul, and from now on, I'm going to refer to him as Paul as they begin this new this brand new mission on this brand new frontier, we, be, we know that to be the Greek and Roman frontier, the Greek and Roman mainland. So I don't think it's an overstatement to say that this verse, this verse, verse number nine, reveals Saul's slash Paul's heart for ministry in a big way, in a way that will humble, convict, and challenge us all. And I hope what it'll do, and I think what it really will require of us, it will require that we reconsider our own ambitions and our own motives and our own ministries and our own callings to serve the Lord. This may not seem like a big deal to you, but I promise you it was a big deal to Paul and it was a big deal to the early church and to the early world, to the ancient world. Um, what appears as a simple, subtle, and minor phonetic or linguistic change actually reveals to what extent, to what extent Saul was open-handed and open-minded before God, and thus it reveals how full his heart was with and by God. The simple explanation behind this is that, is that we see a, tr a simple transition from Saul to Paul. The simple explanation is, well, he's encountering, he's, he's entering a new territory, um, he's leaving the Middle East. He's going into what is Europe, what is the European mainland. Uh, but there's a lot of confusion around why all of a sudden Saul begins to go in by Paul, mainly because they sound similar. And, and I think that we just kind of, you know, we, we kind of just assume there's something there, but we don't really ever think much about it. And, and then maybe we make some, we make some uh, you know, leaps that really aren't the right ones to make. Um, but uh, I want to kind of explain this the best that we can. God did not change his name from Saul to Paul. I want to make this very clear. Maybe you've heard this. Maybe you've assumed this. And I'm not trying to, not trying to say that that's a bad thing to assume, but I, I'm telling you it's the wrong thing to assume. God did not change his name from Saul to Paul. A lot of people kind of wrongly assume that, okay, well, Saul was bad and he was doing bad things. So God gave him a new name and that Paul was his, gospel, was his Christian name. Saul was his lost person name. That's not what happened. Saul changed his own name. This was a decision that he made. Not one that God ordained or, we, or that we know of. And I think if that would have been the case, it would be there in the scripture. This is one that Saul made a decision he made on his own. So my point is this, Saul wasn't marked by his past, therefore he had to take on a new name. This isn't an Abram-Abraham situation or an Israel-Jacob-Israel Jacob, Israel situation. Um, when we get saved, God redeems the old, he transforms us, he washes away our sin, but he doesn't wash away us. We're still the, per we're still the person he loves us. He doesn't, he's not trying to you know, get rid of who we were, he's trying to you know, repair and redeem and repurpose and redefine us. So this isn't a situation where, where God said, okay, Saul, your, your, your name is too, too you know, bloodied. It's too you know, sullied. We got to change that. That's not the case. 
Um, so the idea that God changed his name, that, that's not right. Also, the idea that God changed his name uh, doesn't really work with the story because he's been going by Saul for 13 years since he got saved. Um, the narrative doesn't really, we don't really see the passing of time, but through history we can understand that Acts 13 takes place around 47 AD, 46, 47 AD. Saul got saved in 34 he spent three years in the desert worshiping God and learning from God. He went to Jerusalem and, and studied there for a while. He went to Antioch and served there for a while. So he's been going by Saul for 13 years. So if this was something that God did because he got saved, that would have really doesn't work because he's been going by Saul for a long time since he got saved. So that's not the case. Um, so why then does he change his name as he begins this mission to Greece and Rome? First, let me talk about where this name come from. Saul was a Roman citizen by birth. Saul was born in Tarsus. Tarsus um, is a part of, is near Antioch, up there at the top of the screen, the red circle. Down at the bottom right is Israel, the mainland, Jerusalem there at the very bottom. Saul would have been a Jew born um, as a result of the diaspora. So when the Jews came back from Babylon captivity, not all of them went to Israel. They scattered around the whole world because the world was now globally in, in interconnected. So Saul's family had settled in Tarsus, way up north in modern day Turkey. So Saul would have been born in this new Roman world. So he was born a Roman citizen. So Roman citizens would have been given three names at birth, three names at birth. The first name that you would go by would be the name in your native tongue, the name that you would have been given based on your culture, based on the family that raised you, that, hey, this is the name we want to give you that they chose for you. Um, your middle name would be your family name, like our last name. We don't know Saul's dad, but most likely his middle name would have been his dad's name with a little bit of a special ending on it. So Saul... We don't know his middle name, but the Roman, in the Roman Empire, you would have a third last name, which was kind of like a Roman identification. It was a Greek or Latin name that was Rome's way of labeling you and tracking you. So if you were born in the Roman Empire, even as a Jew, you would be given three names, a name in your native tongue, a family name, and then a Roman name. It just so happens that Saul and Paul sound similarly. We don't know if this was the intent of his parents or not. We don't even know if he chose his, last, his third name. It could have been assigned to him because it's kind of muddied the way history is, is, is reserved. We don't really know. But we do know is that Saul, in the Hebrew, it would have been something like that. Saul, we don't know his middle name because we don't know his dad's name. He never writes about it. But his last name, according to this Roman Empire rule, would have been Paul or Paulus in the Greek. Now, I, that might not make a bit of difference to you, but I promise you I'm proving a point. Paul would have meant pretty much nothing to him, not just as a Jew, but just as a person. It was a Roman license plate. It was a Roman identification. But suddenly... All of a sudden, Saul begins going by this name that meant nothing to him as he enters this brand new frontier. Why is that? I've got a hunch. Paul might not have meant anything to him or the Jews, but it would immediately mean something to his new, mostly Gentile audience. 
as they set their sights on this new region, yes, they would still be interacting with Jews, but mostly their ultimate goal was to reach Gentiles. Remember what the command Jesus gave? Go to the ends of the earth. But more importantly, what was God's commission over Saul? Acts 9. He is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles. So all of a sudden, the reason why God picked this Jew born out of the mainland, born out of due season, who has this weird Roman heritage, all of a sudden it begins to make sense. So on his own accord, in his own mind, with his own decision, Saul makes a strategic decision to change his name in order to change the world. This name that meant nothing to him, this name that made the Jewish people look down on him because he had this Roman connection, all of a sudden Saul decides to lay down his Jewishness, lay down his heritage in order to change the world. Don't you see what this reveals about Saul? Do you see what's on display in this simple yet incredible decision? Paul believed that simply changing his presentation to appeal to a new audience was worth it and would be effective. And after we understand what Antioch was all about, open-handedness, open-mindedness, full hearts, it makes sense that someone like him would make this decision, doesn't it? Remember last week we talked about worship, how it's about being a channel that God can speak to us through and responding to God through. We can learn so much from Paul here about his own approach personally and how we should respond collectively. We learn that presentation does matter, not because we want to impress people, but because we want to communicate to people clearly. Paul believed the gospel deserved as much a chance as it could get to reach its full audience. He was not worried about his own opinion, but on what he could do for God and for non-believers. This reflects and radiates his open-mindedness, his open-handedness. Here you have Paul leading the charge, willing to alter his identity for the sake of the gospel. And maybe this is a stretch, but I, I don't think so. I don't think it's, it's, it's out, of the, out of the realm of what he reveals about his own calling. And I'll show you that. You say, well, that's kind of a small thing to do. I mean, he just changed his name. Well, let me change your name. And how, how do you feel about that? I mean, I don't, maybe you don't, maybe you're not attached to it, but I mean, let me just say this. We're dealing with Mr. Nationalistic, Mr. Extremely Proud of His Jewish Heritage. Over in Philippians, Paul is talking about how people are full of pride and how people have a lot of things they think they can brag about and feel good about. Paul says, let me just tell you something about how good I felt about being Jewish. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. As in, if anybody thinks that based on who they are and what they've done and their connections they have, if you think that can make you somebody, listen, I felt like I was the somebody. And listen to what he brags about. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was named after their king, Saul. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. Paul was extremely proud of his Jewishness. He was attached to his Jewishness. 
which his name reflected. To Paul, that was valuable. That was something that made him feel like he was a notch above other people. But you know what he says in the next couple of verses? Whatever gain I had, whatever value I had in that, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So why did he do this? And this is, this is just the start of what he would do for Jesus. Why? For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish. Paul's not saying, oh, look at me. I'm, I've given up all this for Jesus. Paul, Paul would say, the only thing I've given up is hell. I didn't give up anything for him. But he is saying the things I thought were valuable, it's just trash. Rubbish. The Greek's something even better, but I'll leave that out. This is just, it doesn't mean anything to me. Because those things were just in the way of me gaining something better. Isn't that remarkable? For the sake of knowing Christ and making him known, he was divested of Saul and invested himself in Christ and those yet unreached. Changing his name from Saul to Paul reflects his commitment to Jesus and the unreached. Paul would appeal to Gentiles honoring Jesus and amplifying his gospel. Paul would reflect this universal desire within the gospel, within the kingdom of God, to win the world. If we take Paul as our example for honoring Jesus and being open-handedness, open-minded, suddenly everything becomes so much more high stakes, doesn't it? Are we that committed? You know what this suggests and speaks to us about Paul? And if you want to flip over in closing to 1 Corinthians 9, I'll read a few verses and we'll be done. You know what this tells us about Paul? It, it reveals that he had a winsome spirit. A winsome, a contagious spirit. His spirit was so dedicated to reaching people, it's no surprise how effective he was at making those connections. So I want to look at 1 Corinthians 9 to get an even clearer picture of Paul's winsome spirit. In this passage, he goes into full detail to what extent he would go to win people. Let me just say this. It was much more than just changing his name. That was just a surface level, elementary school level decision to Paul. That might be a big decision for you. I'm not saying it isn't. But for Paul, that was just the first step. That was just necessary to get to the bigger picture, bigger things. In this passage, he's writing about how some people in ministry and some people in church are all about what's in it for me. But Paul's saying, let me tell you what drives me. What's in it for the world? That's how he could say whatever was gained to me, I counted this trash. What's in it for the kingdom of God? So this speaks to our conversion and a conversation about worship. What are we here for? What and why do we worship? Paul reminds us about, it's all about open hands, open minds and full hearts. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, verse number nine, uh, chapter nine, verse 16, at the end of that, he says, woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. 
In a few verses there, he talks about how people say, well, what's your reward? His reward, he says, is presenting the gospel free of charges. And I'll count the cost for those people. I'll make the tough decisions. I'll make the sacrifice in order to reach people who haven't heard. But verse 19 is what I want to focus on. For though I am free from all men, Paul's saying, nobody's told me to do this. This is why I know God didn't tell him to do it. This is something that he felt obligated to do based on his relationship with Jesus, based on his commitment to the church. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those who are without the law, Gentiles as without the law, not being without law toward God, but he's talking about not under the Jewish traditions. That I might win those who are without the law. The point of it is, is verse 22. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save or win some. Now I could spend an hour on each of those verses explaining what that means and what that, how that determined the decisions he made, but here's the short of it. Here's the short of it. Paul was willing to do whatever he had to do to get in the presence and get in the audience of the people necessary in order that he might win some of them. The starting point of that was changing his name. Going by a name that meant nothing to him but would have meant something to somebody. And what does verse 23 tell us? I do this for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of, of, of it with you, with his audience. That's why he changed his name. That's why he would change his approach many times. That's why he refused to allow anything get, to get in the way of the gospel that he might save some. So I've got to ask you, does this describe us? I'll be, I've got to be honest, churches need to have this conversation th every, every couple months because this does not describe churches as, as a whole. I'm right there with you, but it doesn't. And this is convicting to me, but this, is, this should be what we ask ourselves. But this is about you right now. Are we, are you this driven by the gospel, for the gospel, by Christ, for the world, that you would do what Paul did? If it doesn't, this is what Paul is calling us to. I mean, again, verse 23 is so powerful. I do this for the gospel's sake. This decides lifestyles we adopt, things that we do, things that we buy, places that we go. All for the gospel. From verses 24 to 27, Paul even more puts his neck on the line. At the end of that passage, he says, woe or God forbid I become disqualified or a castaway, that I lose my value for the kingdom of God. Church, I pray that we would let this wash over us, humble us, convict us, and challenge us. And I pray this would change us. Lest we lose our true and better reward. Lest we spend our hearts on things that never truly fill us. This will change us and it has changed me. Politically, socially, economically. It changes everything about us. Because we begin to see through a different lens. For the sake 
of the gospel. Oh, that God would grant us a winsome spirit so that we might gain more of him in our hearts and win some for his kingdom. Won't win them all. Paul knew that. But he was determined to win some. Open hands, open minds, full hearts. That's what a winsome spirit looks like and is like. Would you ask God to give you one of those? And would you begin to look at your own hearts and ask yourself what's got to go, what needs to start, what needs to stop? If we're that determined and that driven, we will. If, I would argue that if we read through Philippians 3 and, and 1 Corinthians 9 once a week, we wouldn't be able to get away from it. We get away from those passages because they're very convicting. But take it from the man that wrote them. It's worth it. It's worth it. Because the rest of Acts is the proof that it absolutely was worth it. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for this humbling and convicting and challenging uh, word from you and, and this example that the Apostle Paul left with us. God, I pray you might would challenge all of us tonight and, and convict all of us and, and humble all of us that we might would consider Paul's reason Paul's driving force, his determining, uh, determination that would cause him to do such radical things. Throw away things that were important to him, rebrand himself, represent himself, repackage himself, all for the sake of the gospel. He let go of things that meant everything to him. He adopted things that meant less to him, all for the sake of the gospel. God, would you please... In your mercy, help us to examine every aspect of our lives from who we are privately, who we are personally, who we are publicly, how we view the world, how we view every aspect of the world, and help us to see that what matters most is what that's doing for the kingdom of God and how that's affecting our presentation of the gospel. Lord, would you help us to consider the Apostle Paul's example and with the same driving force for the sake of the gospel would you help us make the changes we need to make would you help up help us make the difference we can make we ask this in Jesus' name amen